Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We sing with the angels in heaven. We sing in Revelation 4 as the elders gather around to your holy throne. You are unlike anyone. You are the holy, blameless, blemishless Lamb of God who came to take the sins of the world away from us. And we are humbled that you care about us. That you know when we get up and when we lie down. You know our thoughts from afar. You know everything about us and you still believe in us. You still, you still see things in us that we don't even see in ourselves. God, we are here today to give you our very best. Because you gave our very best in giving your son. So, Lord, I pray that uh, the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be completely on you, Lord. That we would love you like we've never loved you before and serve you like we've never served you before. That 2022 would be the greatest year of advancing your kingdom than ever before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. I want to welcome everybody in the room. I also want to welcome all of our multi-sites scattered all throughout Albuquerque and Santa Fe. I also want to welcome our little campus out in Belize as well. And I also want to welcome everybody who's watching us online and on the stream. I'm so proud of all of you. Uh, Because of your generosity and because of the way that you have raised up and said, you know what, I want to do what God wants me to do, I thank you. I thank you for taking the mission statement of this church and making it your personal mission statement of knowing Christ and of making Christ known. You know, this last year in 2021, we accomplished some pretty significant things. We launched a television ministry that not only reaches the city of Albuquerque, but the entire state of New Mexico and also El Paso. It also reaches the entire nation of Belize. There's over 14,000 people every week in the nation of Belize that watch us. 14,000 households. That's a reason to give praise and honor to God for what he's done. And that's because of your generosity. I can't thank you enough. Let me share with you some other things. I'm going to give you a long list of some of the things that God has done through you. We don't get to talk about this very much. We don't get to brag on what God has done very much. But I just want to do it at the beginning of this year. I don't know if you know this or not, but you've had a a part in 16 churches in Nicaragua, starting 16 churches. We have two churches in Juarez, Mexico. We have one church in Lacoma, Haiti, that houses a medical clinic, clean water system, a five-acre community farm, and a huge above-ground cistern to provide water for the farm crops. We have also a church in Pagnol, Haiti, where a medical clinic right now is being constructed. We have one church being constructed in Liberia, Africa, that also includes a three-acre farm to feed the local community. We have long-term partnerships with Cairo and Alexandria, Egypt, that work through small groups and recovery ministry to win Muslims to Jesus Christ. We have three churches in Cuba. When Cuba opened up, we stepped through the door. We have three churches in Cuba that sponsor sports outreach and feeding programs to the local community. And one church in the Dominican Republic that's going into construction next month. We also sponsor a sports outreach program to the Kuna Indians in Panama through a local Panamanian church. We also have a medical clinic in La Esmeralda, Nicaragua, just to name a few. 
Now, friends, we wanted 2022 to be the most significant year of impact that we have ever had before. And so we're going to try something that I'm not certain any other church in the United States has ever tried during a pandemic. But we're dumb enough to do what God wants us to do. Are you ready? This is the most aggressive uh, endeavor that we've ever had in the history of our church. You ready for it? Take a look at this. This year, we all have an incredible opportunity to be a part of something new, something different, something big. We at Sagebrush are passionate about making Christ known, and this year, we are ready to do just that with the most ambitious plan we have ever gone after in the history of our church. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 give us the roadmap. It's all spelled out for us. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We are on this earth to spread the message of Jesus here and across the globe. So we're going to try something that we have never done before. With your help, we're going to plant and provide facilities to 50 plus churches globally throughout this year. We are launching a new capital campaign over the next 365 days and every single dime that we raise won't stay here at Sagebrush, but it will go to our partners overseas where we can be a light in a place we've never been a light to before. We're talking about reaching countries and impacting countries like the Congo, Ethiopia, Kenya, Liberia, Madagascar, Zambia, Costa Rica, Panama, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, and of course, the nation of Belize. Our M1 mission team has compiled a list of 24 countries with 50 plus projects that we can fund over the next few years, and we can leave this world in better shape than we found it. Now, you may say this sounds like a lot, right? A lot of work, a lot to even ask for. Maybe you're wondering how much of a difference you could actually make in this. Well, let's look at it this way. The average American spends $92 a month on coffee. That breaks down to about $3 a day. And on top of that, the typical amount spent on one trip to Starbucks is $12. Let's say we took $24 a week, the equivalent of two trips to Starbucks for 52 weeks and set that aside. That comes out to a total of $1,248 saved by the end of the year. $1,248 may not sound like a lot to you, or maybe it does. Maybe for some of you, that's about a month's rent. But to put this into perspective, with just 30 people setting that amount aside, we would have more than enough to cover a project in Costa Rica. The people in this picture, these people need a Sunday school classroom, several of them. They need a nice main worship auditorium. And get this, in Costa Rica, we can build them all of that for just $33,000. Maybe you aren't a coffee drinker. Maybe you've got other things you could cut back on or even just a few priorities. Maybe you're someone who just happens to have some extra money that you haven't known quite what to do with before. Over the next year, we are taking a challenge to come together for this M1 Capital Campaign in order to make a difference in our world. There are so many lives just waiting to be changed by the life-changing power of Jesus. And with a little extra help from each of you this year, we can make that happen. 
If you'd like to know more about the specific projects we're going to be working on throughout the next year, check out the Capital Campaign at m1.sagebrush.church or on the Sagebrush app today. Listen, we know that we're still in the middle of a pandemic. We understand that. We know that our church has been scattered everywhere. We also know that you're the kind of people that want to leave this world in better shape than the way you found it, and it's more than just a slogan to you. And you also understand, don't you, that the real world, you don't live in it. The United States of America is not the real world. The real world's where there's suffering that's going on that's so intense and so incredible that you, you can't even imagine it. And if you've ever traveled internationally to a third world country, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You say, well, my little bit of money won't make a big difference. Well, that little church that you saw for $33,000, how in the world can we build all of that for $33,000? It's because of the power of the dollar bill. $33,000 in that country is millions of dollars to those people. So we can build significant works of God. And we've got all these local pastors, and they're meeting out in the middle of fields. They're meeting out in the middle of nowhere, and they need partners. They need someone who's been blessed to be a blessing. And I know enough about you guys that when the challenge is coming, you guys will always rise to the challenge. Now, here's what's so great. When this pandemic is over and we're able to travel freely again without having to get coronavirus tested everywhere that we go, and we are certain that we can bring our missionaries back, you'll have the opportunity to go to the place that you've given money to. So you say you're going to look at that M1 list on the website or on the app, and you're going to say, oh, I'd like to be a part of this one, or I'd like to be a part of this one. I'd like to see this one happen. You'll have the opportunity to go and see how God used you to make an impact in the lives of other people. So here's what's going to happen on your way out today. You're going to get an M1 capital campaign card. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to put it on your Bible. And when you're doing your devotionals, when you're reading the Word of God, we just want you to pray. God, what would you have me give above and beyond my normal tithes and offerings to make an impact for your kingdom and for your glory? And if you're watching me at home, all you got to do is go to the website or go to the app. And you'll have an opportunity to sign up right there to make a pledge, a one-year pledge above and beyond to make a difference in the life of somebody else. Now, who in the world wouldn't want to be a part of something like this? I've never heard of a church trying to plant 50 churches in one year. And I know that we can do it because God is on our side and nothing is impossible with him. So I'm counting on you guys to step up. We'll collect those cards in February. I am stoked about doing this. Okay, we got to move on to the message, but I'm fired up about this, all right? Let's get into the message today, all right? There, I read a story this past week about Admiral Rickover. Let me tell you who he was. Admiral Rickover was over the Navy's nuclear program. And so if you wanted to be an officer on a nuclear submarine or a nuclear vessel, you had to go through an interview process with Admiral Rickover. And I guess he was a pretty hard interviewer because a lot of times these Navy officers would come out shaking. They would be upset. They would be mad. They would be thoroughly intimidated. President Jimmy Carter, before he was the President of the United States, he had the opportunity to be interviewed by Admiral Rickover, and he writes about that encounter. This is what he writes. He said, I had applied for the nuclear submarine program, and Admiral Rickover was interviewing me for the job. It was the first time I met Admiral Rickover, and we sat in a large room by ourselves for more than two hours, and he let me choose any subjects I wished to discuss. Very carefully, I chose those about which I knew most at, at the time. Current events, gunmanship, uh, music, literature, Navy tactics, uh, electronics, gunnery. And he began to ask me a series of questions of increasing difficulty. In each instance, he soon proved that I knew relatively little about the subject that I had chosen. He always looked right into my eyes and he never smiled. 
I was saturated with cold sweat. Finally, ask a question, and I thought I could redeem myself. He said, how did you stand in your class at the Naval Academy? Since I had completed my sophomore year at Georgia Tech before entering Annapolis, I had done very well, and I swelled my chest with pride and said, Sir, I stood 59th in a class of 820. I sat back to wait for the congratulations, which never came. Instead, the question, Did you do your best? I started to say, Yes, sir. But I remembered who this was and recalled several of the many times at the academy where I could have learned more about our allies, our enemies, weapons, strategy, and so forth. I was just human. I finally gulped and said, no, sir. I didn't always do my best. He looked at me for a long time and then turned his chair around to end the interview. He asked one final question, which I've never been able to forget or to answer. He said, why not? I sat there for a while, shaken, and then slowly left the room. So let me ask you a question as we begin this new year. Are you giving your best Are you giving your very best to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords, or are you coasting? Have you become kind of apathetic and a little bit lazy in your spiritual aspects of your life, and you're really not giving the very best to the one who gave his very best for you? We have a verse of scripture that we have plastered on the walls up in the staff offices. Whenever a staff member joins our team, we ask them to immediately memorize this verse of scripture. It's found in Colossians 3.17. It says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, you do your best. No matter what you say, no matter what you promise, no matter what uh, project you're after, no matter what goes on in your life, you give your very best to the one who gave his very best for you. I like how Martin Luther King Jr. put it. He said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the host of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Do you have passion in your life? Do you have a passion for the things of God? Are you giving him your best every single moment of every day? So here we are, brand new year, brand new series called 100%. And today we're going to start diving into the book of Malachi. Probably a book that you've never studied before. If you're watching me from the East Coast, you probably thought the name of the book was Malachi. It's not. It's Malachi, all right? Let me give you a little background so you understand the timeline and history as to when Malachi comes on the scene. When Malachi comes on the scene, the nation of Israel has been divided in half. There was a king by the name of Rehoboam. He was the son of Solomon. When he became the king, he decided that he was going to continue to overtax the people. Solomon taxed the people an awful lot. So Rehoboam thought, I'll do exactly what my dad did, and I'll hammer these people down into submission, and they will follow me. Well, guess what? People like paying taxes back then as much as we like paying taxes today. 
There were 12 tribes that made up the nation of Israel. And 10 of the 12 tribes says, we're not going to put up with this anymore. And so they split the nation of Israel in half. And the northern part of the nation kept the name Israel. And 10 of the 12 tribes of of Israel went up to, to be that part of the nation. The southern part of the nation took the name of Judah. And only two tribes were there. And that's where Rehoboam continued his reign. Well, history tells us that the northern kingdom of Israel was a very wicked place. They didn't honor God. They didn't seek God. All told, they had 19 kings, and not one of their kings ever sought the face of of God. And the Bible says that the people of Israel did wickedness in the eyes of the Lord, and so God allowed the Assyrians to come in and just lay siege to them. And I mean, they just, the Assyrians devastated them. You ever heard the term, the 10 lost tribes of Israel? That's where we get it from. What, that there, they were decimated. The, the few remaining people that were left alive, they intermarried. They went with other cultures and other races. And the 10 tribes of Israel disappeared from the face of the earth. Now, Judah lasted just a little bit longer. All told, they had 20 kings. Only five of their kings sought the face of God. They too did what was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and God allowed the Babylonians under the leadership of a man named King Nebuchadnezzar, and he came in and he lay siege to Jerusalem. He tore down the temple, he burned down and tore down the walls that surrounded Jerusalem. He deported back to Babylon two million Jewish people. And it appeared that Jerusalem was just going to be another ancient city that was forgotten for all of history. Well, 70 years goes by while they're in captivity, while they're in exile. And the Persians beat the Babylonians. And the Persian king allows the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem if they want to. Now, 70 years has gone by. They've got their livelihoods that they built up. They've got their homes that they built up. They've got friendships that they built up. Out of the 2 million people who were deported to Babylon, only 50,000 want to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. So under the leadership of a man by the name of Zerubbabel, you'll never forget that name again, will you? Zerubbabel led them back to Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple. They tried to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem, but they failed. Their enemies took control. Fast forward 70 years later, a man named Nehemiah shows up on the scene, and he's able to do that, which the people of Israel were not able to do. He rebuilds the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Malachi is the prophet during this time. He is the one who speaks on behalf of God. And when he comes on the scene, the spiritual lives of these people is just abysmal. It's an absolute wreck. They're not taking the things of God seriously. They're not giving their very best to him. They're full of greed. Their marriages are imploding. They're just wicked from one side to the other. So Malachi is the one who's going to speak on behalf of God and tell them what they need to get right, the things that they need to repent of. And right off in chapter 1, he talks about their worship. Now let me explain this before I read this passage of Scripture. In this time period, in fact, in the whole Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system so that you could gain forgiveness of sins. The Bible says without the shame of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So every year, you would bring the very best lamb that you had. And it had to be the best lamb. It had to be a perfect lamb, a blemishless lamb. 
the best lamb that you had, and you would give it to the priest. The priest would kill the lamb, pour the blood of the lamb on the ground, and then pour the altar on the altar, the, the lamb, and set the lamb on fire after it was dead. And the aroma of the meat would be a, would be a, a, a aroma that was pleasing to the Lord. Now, now why that to kill a lamb? Well, someone has to die for the person's sins. So you know when you give that lamb over to the priest that the only reason that lamb is dying is because of what you've done wrong. Can you imagine how difficult that must have been every year to pick out a lamb? Knowing that the only reason this lamb was ending its life was to, so you could be forgiven of your sins for one year. So they were supposed to pick the very best that they had. Well, look at what, the, what Malachi says about the people. Verse 8 says, God says, you bring blind animals for sacrifice. Is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? God's upset. He says, you come and you don't come to give me your very best. You come to give me the less than your best. You're bringing your blind animals, your, your crippled animals. You're bringing your diseased animals for the sacrifice for your sins. And you can sense that God is upset with this. I mean, it's like God says, I don't even know why you're even doing this. Why do you think that I would be pleased with your leftovers? Now, now let me give you an illustration about leftovers. We're going to play a little game along with the pastor. You get to choose which one you would rather have. And, and I think the options are going to be kind of obvious, all right? Here, here's the first thing we're going to look at. This is a sandwich from Dion's. We found this in the dumpster. Actually, we threw it in the dumpster, and then we retrieved it later on. So you can see, it, it's seen better days, right? For those of you who aren't around Albuquerque who are watching, Dion's is delicious. But I don't think you're going to want the sandwich from the dumpster. Over here, you have a choice, though, of a brand-new sandwich. Look how nice that sandwich is. Yeah. Dion is delicious. That's a turkey and Swiss right there with some tomato and lettuce and mayo. That is a good time right there. So just out of curiosity, by the raise of the hands, play along at home. How many would want the uh, leftover uh, dumpster sandwich? Anybody want the dumpster? If you put your hand up, I'm going to have you eat it. So just let me see. If there's anybody? You know, yeah, I didn't think there'd be any takers after I threatened that, right? But how many would love to have a delicious Dion sandwich? Anybody like Dion's? Anybody at all? Raise your hand up. Oh, yeah, a whole bunch of hands went up. You just had a donut. You're ready for a sandwich, too. That's really nice. That's good. So that's one option, right? So that was kind of obvious. We wouldn't take the dumpster sandwich. We want the Dion's delicious sandwich. Let me give you another option of two things. You know what this is? That's an iPhone. You remember when they looked like this? That's an iPhone 3G. Remember how excited you were to get an iPhone 3G? Man, we were cooking with kerosene with an iPhone 3G. Now I've got an iPhone 13. Ooh, I'm going to give this away today. Anybody want the iPhone 3G? Raise your hand up real high. Anybody want an iPhone 3G? Anybody at all? Anybody? Anybody? How many would like to get an opportunity to win the iPhone 13? Just out of curiosity? Yeah, I'm lying to you. I'm giving it away. You crazy? That's a $1,000 phone. I'm not giving that away at all. Kind of obvious, wasn't it? Not too hard to figure out. What could be under the next box? Well, let's see. What's, what's so funny? So I see here we have the Dallas Cowboy, and look at this. 
Signed by Troy Aikman himself. Honey, hush, that's nice. I like Troy Aikman now that he's retired. I'll tell you that right now. So you have the choice between being a fan of the Dallas Cowboys. I wonder what could be under here. Let's just take a look and see. Well, look at that. There's a shocker. Kansas City Chiefs. Which one of you would rather be a fan of the Dallas Cowboys? Let's put your hands up real high, okay? So that's the people we need to pray for. Okay, that's good. How many of you have given your life to Jesus and you're a Chief fan? Just, just kidding around. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. Pick whichever one you want. I don't want to say anything. I don't want to jinx either team. I would love for the Cowboys and the Chiefs to play in the Super Bowl. Then we could put it up on the big screen and have a super spreader event. I think it'd be a lot of fun. You know what I'm saying? I'm just messing around. Seemed pretty obvious which one to choose, didn't it? Maybe for the last one it wasn't as obvious for you, but the other ones were pretty obvious, weren't they? So we can understand why God is upset. Look at what he says here in verse 14. He says, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty. And my name is to be feared. That means revered, respected, honored. My name is to be revered, respected, and honored among the nations. God say, don't come in here with your leftovers. Don't live your life giving me the least that you can give me. There, there is this thing that is pervasive in Christianity today. And it's not, it's not just pervasive in, in America. It's pervasive just about any place. Unless there's persecution of, of Christians, this is pretty much the way Christians live their life. They, they kind of live their life with this attitude of, you know, what's the least I got to do? You know, what's the least I got to do to be a Christian? What's the, what's the least I got to do to show my love for God? What's the least I got to do to get myself into heaven one day? What's the very least that I have to do? I want you to imagine for a second that you try this in any other aspect of your life. This whole attitude of, what's the least that I have to do? Try it with your boss on Monday. Hey, hey, boss, what's the least I got to do to you know, still get a paycheck around here? What's the least amount of work I've got to accomplish? Can I come in a little bit late, leave a little bit early, have extended lunch periods? What's the least I got to do and still stay employed? See how that conversation goes over. Do it with your kids. Hey, son, hey, daughter, what's the least I got to do to still be considered a good dad? Do I, do I have to listen to all your stories? Because your stories have no beginning, no middle, and no end. There's no sense to yours. It's just gobbledygook. Do I have to listen to you? I don't want to listen. Playoffs are right now. I don't want to listen to you. Do I have to go to all your games? Honey, you swim. You're on the swim team. Do you realize how much time goes by before you get back in the pool? I really don't want to do the swim thing. Can I just go to 10% of that? Do I have to go to all of it? Do I have to go to everything? What's the least I got to do, kids, to, that you still think I'm a good dad? Try, try that one out with your kids. Or better yet, try it out with your spouse. Here's your homework assignment if you choose to accept it, husbands. Go home and look the, deeply into the eyes of your wife and say, what's the least I got to do to still be married to you? What's the least amount of time I got to spend with you? What's the least amount of dating I have to do with you? What's the least I got, I got to buy you gifts? Well, I just want to know. What, what's the least I have to do and still have sex with you at night? That's what I really want to know. Give, give that one a shot. 
And ladies, what would be your response? You'd be hurt. You'd be offended. If someone ever came to you and said, hey, what's the least I got to do to be your friend? What's the least I got to do to show you that I love you? You would know they weren't committed to you. You would know they didn't really care about you. And yet it's pervasive in Christianity today. Well, what's the least I got to do when it comes to going to church? Do I have to go every week? Well, what's the least I got to read in the Bible? Do I have to read every day? Do I have to pray every day? Do I, do I have to give my, well, now they're going to do this capital. Do I have to give to that too? I mean, what's the least that I have to do? Do I have to talk about you? I remember when I was 15, I gave my life to Jesus, and I told him that I surrendered everything over to him, but I didn't. I didn't surrender over my filthy mouth till I was 17 years old. I remember I gave my life to Jesus when I was 15 years old, but I didn't get over my dating until I was in my mid-20s. I gave my life to Jesus when I was 15, but I didn't give over my entertainment choices and what I listened to on the radio for a long, long time after that. My attitude was, what's the least I got to do for you? Do I, do I have to go to church this weekend? Do I have to read the Bible? Do I have to tell my friends about you? Do I have to put money in those collection boxes? Do I have to fund the ministry and the message of Jesus? And it never occurred to me that my attitude was offensive to God. I'm going to be honest with you. It just never. I thought he'd just, just be glad that I chose him. I just thought he should be glad that I'm on his team. I never realized that the way that I was living my life was breaking his heart and was showing him how little I really loved him and how little I wanted to serve him and follow him. Why, why is God offended when we bring as a sacrifice to him some blind or crippled lamb when we don't give him our very best? Well, maybe he's offended because he gave his very best to us. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And he saw our shame. He saw our sin up close and personal. And he proclaimed that he was the son of God. And for that, they, they crucified him. They beat him beyond recognition. They laughed at him and they mocked him and they spit on him. They blindfolded him and they punched him in the face. And they said, prophesy for us, Jesus. Who just hit you? They tied him to a pole and they stripped him naked and they whipped him. He was so badly beaten, he couldn't even carry his cross all the way to Golgotha. And when he finally did get to Golgotha, he laid down his life as they put nine-inch nails into his hands and into his feet. A crown of thorns upon his head. And what is our response? What is our grand gesture back to God who gave everything? Hey, what's the least I got to do for you? Do I have to talk to you? Do I have to live for you? Do I have to spend time with you? I was reading this book by Tim Hansel. He said, I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. 
I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. George Barna calls this casual Christianity. In his book, he writes, casual Christians are those who perceive their Christianity as faith in moderation. Ooh, doesn't that describe it? I don't want too much to Jesus. I don't want to get too radical about this. I don't want to go all in. I just want to know what's the least I've got to do. What's the moderate path? It allows them to feel religious without having to prioritize their faith. Christianity is a low-risk, predictable proposition, providing a faith perspective that's not demanding. A casual Christian can be all the things that they esteem, a nice human being, a family person, religious or exemplary citizen, a reliable employee, and never have to publicly defend or represent difficult moral or social positions or even lose much sleep over the private choices as long as they mean well and generally do their best. From their perspective, their brand of faith practice is genuine, realistic, and practical. To them, casual Christianity is the best of all worlds. It encourages them to be a better person than, than if they've been irreligious. Yet, it's not a faith into which they feel compelled to heavily invest themselves. And here's what's disturbing. Barna says that's 66% of Christians. Not Christians who are persecuted for their faith. Not Christians who, who uh, are in the underground. I'm, I'm talking about the average everyday person who's not persecuted. They're, they're not persecuted. There's so many countries not persecuted. That's the kind of faith that we give to the Lord. A faith that refuses to heavily invest itself into him. So, so here's the question. What, what does God deserve? Does he deserve a blind and crippled sacrifice? Or does he deserve the best? The very best that you've got. Let me remind you who, who he is and what he's done. When I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because he is with me. His rod and staff, they comfort me. He's never left me. He's never forsaken me. And he sees things in me and believes things in me. But I don't even believe in myself. He's forgiven me for every stupid thing that I've ever done. And he's thrown my sin as far away as the east is from the west. In his sight, because of the precious blood of Jesus, I have been made righteous. I have been made right with God, not because of anything I've done, but because of what he's done for me. And his love... There's no end to it. No matter how inconsistent I've been, no matter how many lies I've told, no matter how many promises I've broken, he just keeps loving me. And every time I fall down, he picks me back up again, brushes me off and says, let's get after it again. He never quits. He never throws in the towel. He never washes his hands of a sinner like me. He's given me an amazing wife. Three amazing kids. I've got a wonderful son-in-law. I've got the most beautiful grandson you've ever seen. And I've gotten to be a part of this church for all these years. And it's been a great joy of watching you 
care more about the things of God than you care about anything else. Leveraging your life for something bigger than yourself. I don't have much time left on this earth. I just want to spend the rest of my days giving my best to the one who gave his best for me. My goodness, can I remind you that there's a home in heaven being prepared for you right now? And it's a place where there is no more death and there is no more sickness and there is no more pain and there is no more disease for the old order of things has passed away because our God has made everything new again. So you think we're going to come in here with some blind sacrifice? You think we're going to live our life offering up some crippled lamb? What will be our response? The hope would be is that we would say, wherever you want me to go, that's where I want to go. Whatever you want me to do, that's what I want to do. Whatever you want me to sacrifice, that's what I want to sacrifice. You gave your best for me. I want to give my very best, one day at a time, back to you. You are the king of kings. And you are the Lord of lords. You are the creator of the ends of the universe. You are the alpha and the omega. You are the beginning and the end. You are the first and the last. You are the wonderful counselor. You are the mighty God. You're the everlasting father. You are the prince of peace. You are the God of the second chance. And you are worthy. You are worthy to receive honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever. So what's it going to be for you in 2022? You're going to give him your best, or you're going to coast. You're going to have the attitude of what's the least I can do, or the attitude of it's the least that I can do. Whatever you want. Whenever you want it. I lay it all down for the one who laid it all down for me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, don't allow us to think that it's okay to give some blind, crippled commitment to you. You deserve everything we've got. And the reason that we're empty, the reason we don't have purpose, the reason we don't have the peace that passes all understanding, the calm in the midst of the storm is because we got one toe in you and everything else outside of you. Lord, I pray that we'd plunge in that we would go after this thing, that we would never be casual in our worship again, that we'd be never casual with our generosity, that we'd be never casual in the way that we live our life and the way we want to impact the lives of other people. God, that you'd get everything out of us, that we'd give you all that we've got because you're worthy of it all. Lord, for friends in this room and at home who are just coasting, This is just a one hour a week thing and they don't really take you seriously. God, wake them up. Help them, Lord, to give their very best to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.